All right, guys, we're going to be in, we're going to take a, taking a little break from Romans. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We will get back to Romans, guys. It's okay. We will go back, I promise. I promise. You need reassurance. Well, we in Romans 11. I don't know how much reassurance you I'm just playing with you. <laughs> it's not the most simple passage, I tell you that. Simon's going to take that on. Good luck. He don't even know. God bless you. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. So There's a little chunk there. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. So Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. And if you, um, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table. You can certainly have one and should be on the screen. All right. Let's read. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on the way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among who I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert. Remembering that day, remember that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak to your church through your word, the church that um, you shed your own blood for. Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to hear, and, excuse me, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. And would you help us to obey? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So from the beginning of our church plant, it has been my desire to have multiple pastors or, or elders to share the pastoral work as well. Um, and, and I see that as a biblical example in the New Testament. And what we learn from this passage is that godly elders and pastors are vital for the health of the church. Godly elders and pastors are vital for the health of the church. Now, if you're wondering about the context of this speech we find that Paul's giving, it's important to know because context is? There we go. Context is king. Paul's farewell speech to the elders, the pastors of the churches that he himself planted, knowing, if you would listen to the speech, knowing he thought that he was about to die. So this is the last, his last will and testament to the churches that he planted and to the men that he set as elders over those churches. So listen, if you know that you're going to die and you know that you have one last thing to say to a group of people, it's important, yes? You think about it very deeply. You say what you truly mean and give advice that really matters. You can feel the weightiness of these words as you listen to the text. The seriousness about which Paul cares for the church, the danger that the church faces, and the, and the responsibility that godly pastors and leaders have to protect the church. And so we just need to back up for a minute and ask ourselves a question. Sometimes we assume, who, who or what are pastors? Who or what are pastors? We see Paul in this text use three titles that he uses interchangeably and that you can see in the New Testament is used interchangeably as well. You see the word elder, overseer, and shepherd. So let's take a look at that. When you think about the word elder in verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, that's where the church was, and summoned the elders of the church. Now the, the New Testament church is, is an heir of the Jewish context. And in the Jewish context, elders were mature men who guarded the ethic of the community and were held responsible for maintaining good moral order and exercising moral judgment. So it wasn't just old people. <laughs> it was people who had responsibility People who had a responsibility to care for the good and the conduct and the well-being of the community. In verse 28, we also see that he uses this word oversee. See, it says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God. See, when you see overseer, actually, that's the same word that we have for the word bishop. Overseer and bishop, it's the same word. And we see in the New Testament that overseer, bishop, elder, it's all the same office. Okay, it's, it's, it's not a different class of people. It's the same person. And it's someone who is charged with protective care over others. Someone who is meant to look after the physical and the spiritual welfare of God's people. And in verse 28, we see the, this, this word shepherd. The word shepherd and the word pastor, that's the, that's the same thing, okay? And it's one called to, to feed, care for, and lead the flock. 
The church is God's flock, so a shepherd is a mature individual charged with leading and caring for God's people. Which leads us to the question, okay, well, this seems like a pretty important thing. Who exactly can be elders? We need to go back to the text to look at that too. Titus 1, 5-9, I'm going to read it to you. It says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So we see the qualifications. What's interesting is different from any other job qualification that you would see because it actually focuses on personal character. Right. It's not like you got to do this. This this actually focuses on the character of the individual who is fulfilling that role. In other words, the character needs to resemble Christ's character. Now, what's interesting, you can read the, the, the passage in two ways. You can read them as high standards of which no one could reach or you could read them as standards for which Christians should strive for. So, example, if somebody's being a bully, I don't care if they're an elder or not. I'm going to tell them to stop. Yeah. If somebody's excessively drinking, should I be like, should you stop? Right? You see what I'm saying? You should, no one should be hot-tempered or, or greedy for money. Or, and, and, and we should all seek to love what is good and sensible and righteous and holy and to be self-controlled. The idea is that an elder is, is not someone who is on its own stage, but it's just a, 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 an example of mature Christianity. Not on another plane, but, but in other words, uh, an elder or a pastor should be someone that I could go, hey, look, I want you to imitate that person. And it would mean imitating what Christ desires. See, the standard, now here's the deal, the standard cannot be perfection because is anybody sinless? So it, can't, it can't, certainly can't be perfection. But here's what, what I know is important for holiness is that there is consistent repentance. That when sin is pointed out, when conviction is given, when rebuke is brought up, there is not a, well, I don't care about that. No, there is a consistent, heartfelt repentance. It's a striving after a goal that we know we will not reach completely, but we strive nonetheless. What's interesting, he goes from his character to the person's family life. He says that that an elder must be a, a good and faithful husband. In other words, he must care for his bride as Christ loved the church and gave himself for his bride, the church. So if the dude can teach really well, but he doesn't love his wife, can he be an elder? No, no. So not only must he be a good and faithful husband, he must be a good and faithful father. He must care for his children as the father provides for and trains his own children in the church. What's interesting is when you look at these qualifications, this personal character and this family life, it kind of shows us what the church is. The church is not primarily a business and a pastor is not primarily just a job. The church is God's household. 
It's God's family. And so the qualifications for one who would shepherd God's family, ironically, is the qualification for a good husband and father because you have to care for, love, provide, correct, and train the church. And what's interesting is both educators and social scientists know the importance of fatherhood for the natural family. Yeah? There's some statistics. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. So if, if it is true that in the natural family that fatherhood is important, then surely it is true in God's family that fatherhood would be important. It's important for God's family, the church. Now, what's interesting when it goes about this character qualifications and this family life, there actually is one duty that's kind of outlined, and that duty is teaching. The main duty is a clear understanding and teaching of the gospel with the ability to teach and correct others. Because think about it, the teaching from Christ is what actually binds the church together. That's what constitutes the family of God in the first place. Now, if we go back to that passage that we read in Acts 20, we kind of get some more uh, indications of what elders do. In verse 18 of Acts 20, it says, When they came to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and doing trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. In other words, Apostle Paul is saying, Listen, I'm trying to model to you what I expect from you. Paul's saying, I'm not just going to tell you to do something, is that you could look at my life and see something of what I'm telling you to do. He says that he walked with humility. This is Apostle Paul. If anyone had an excuse to not walk with humility, someone who's seen Jesus face to face, it would be him. But he said, I demonstrated to you what it is to walk this Christian life, and it means to walk with humility. A deeper understanding of the gospel should result in humility. The the, the more I understand the depths to which Christ went to save me and the reality of my own rebellion in my heart, I should go, oh my goodness, I need his grace. Beloved, leadership in the church should not lead to pride. That means you fundamentally misunderstand the content of the message. The content of the message is you need help. You need somebody else to save you. You can't save yourself. We also see that he models what it means to care about people. He lived his life unselfishly. You can see these these tears. tears, You don't just cry for no reason, right? You cry because of a deep compassion. And what's interesting, you also see that he endured suffering and hardship. Beloved, suffering is not abnormal in the Christian life. In fact, one of the things I, I feel like I, I have to do as a pastor that I'm, I'm increasingly understanding is actually getting people ready to suffer. <laughs> because when people suffer, they go, what? I can't believe it. But beloved, Philippians 1.29, it says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Beloved, we live in a broken world. It's full of sin. We 
the, the reality of suffering actually points to the fact that we want something else. That this is, this is not our home. Our ultimate hope is not in this world. The reality of suffering points to the fact that, okay, we actually need Christ to come back. Don't, don't, let, don't get lulled to sleep. If you're not having suffering, you could, you could misremember where your true home is. But beloved Paul says, I am modeling what I'm telling you is going to happen, that I would endure suffering patiently. We also see in verse 26 that, that he teaches them. Verse 26 says, therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. The way that he describes teaching, he, he describes it as a watchman. have watchmen, but if you can imagine in an ancient city, you had walls. The walls were for protection. And there was one individual or a couple individuals who were stationed there, particularly at night while everybody was asleep, so that if an enemy or an invader or another army started coming, they could go, wake up, everybody. Dangerous here. Get your weapon. It's time to fight. This is how he saw his 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 calling as a teacher. He says, listen, I have to teach what is true because there are dangerous teachings that could come and corrupt the church. And so I have to be awake. I have to be vigilant. Even if you're not paying attention, I have to pay attention and I have to say, listen, this teaching or that teaching, it is wrong and it will hurt you. What I love is says he taught the whole council. He taught everything. It means the things that people like and the things that they don't like. The great temptation in teaching is to teach only what people want to hear. Because you don't want to be the person who said the thing that they don't want to hear, right? That's an awkward position. Paul says, no, no, no. What I did, I, the thing, look, and it was so interesting, is depending on where you live, the time period you live, and the culture you live, what is appealing in the scripture and what is not appealing actually changes depending on where you live. But no matter what, no matter where you are, you have to uphold all of the teachings of the scriptures. Whether that be the scriptural teachings on sexuality, whether that be the scriptural teachings on justice, whatever it be, no matter where you are, the teachings of the scripture, whether they offend or get applause, that does not matter. What matters is, are you faithful to declaring everything that the scriptures contain. He goes on to say, look, I got to rebuke false teachers because his wolves are coming. He's pointing out that, it is, that there's some teaching that is just wrong and you have to correct it. So beloved, if, if someone comes to you and listen, not just randomly, but from the text shows you, hey, listen, this teaching is not helpful. It's not healthy. It will, the idea is it will kill you. That's what wolves do. Wolves do. And I love, he says, he devoted them to the word of God. He devoted them to the word of his grace. So he's talking about teaching and rebuking and being a watchman. And it's like, man, that's pretty harsh. But he's like, remember the chief article, beloved, is grace. I devote, I want you to be consistent and harp on this word of grace. That there is grace for those who fall. There's grace for those who have sinned. There is grace for those who backslid. 
Harp on that grace. We also see that Paul demonstrated care. In verse 31, he says, Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. Listen, Paul didn't see his job as something he clocked in and clocked out. Right? You don't, you don't cry over stuff that you just leave at work. No, no. He, he had invested his whole life in this calling. In other scriptures, we see that he dedicated and shared his life and his ministry. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.28 says, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. He's not just saying, I'm going to preach sometimes. He's going to say, my life is available to you, that my heart is available to you. We also see in this, this teaching that, that he says, I am going to, to lead and you should lead, that, that elders and pastors have to manage the church. In other words, you, you think through how to accomplish the mission. Now our mission is on a wall. We preach the gospel, produce disciples, and pursue justice. And so the leaders are supposed to think, how exactly do we do that? Are we being faithful and are we accomplishing the task at hand? Are we helping people with it and get it invested in Scripture? Are we helping people being, being open and honest with their sin, seeking to, to, to serve and help one another? He sees see the elders not only are not only supposed to tell people to do ministry, but they're to lead people, demonstrate. In verse 35, it says, In every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, elders are supposed to care for those in need because the church is supposed to care for those in need. That we are supposed to pursue justice, that when people are weak and they are in need and they need help, we don't just look at them and say, well, we'll pray for you. No, we figure out ways to go help them. We struggle together and try to figure it out. In other words, elders don't matter because elders are awesome. Elders matter because the church matters. Elders matter because the church matters to God. In verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. Get this, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You see, Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, purchased the church with his own blood. The church is not some secondary aspect of your relationship with God. It's not you and Jesus. No, no, Christ bought a community of people with the expectation that the community would interact with each other, with the expectation that they would follow him together. So it's not you and Jesus in your room by yourself. That's not what the scripture says. No, no, no. He bought the church. He bought y'all to live together. We can see that Jesus cares deeply for his church. Listen, when Jesus looks out into the world, I want you to see that he has a special affinity for his church. Now, God is a God of love, but when he sees his church, he sees his bride. When he sees the church, he sees the one that he shed his blood for. When he sees the church, it moves his heart, and he cares deeply. Listen, listen. He didn't die for governments. He, he didn't die for any other institution. He didn't die for nonprofits. And beloved, all that will pass away. But there's one thing that won't. The church. Beloved, if he values the church in this manner, should we not? If he looks at the church and says, everything else, that's going to pass away. But the people in the church, I want them to remain with me. There's going to be a new government crisis king. 
there's going to be the same people in the church. We can see that he cares deeply for his church. He wants his church to be protected. Christ did not go to such lengths to save his church that the church would be left without care. In fact, this was one of the issues that the people of God had in the Old Testament. You'll find prophecies in the Old Testament. And he's like, look, all you leaders of Israel, you are horrible shepherds because you don't protect the sheep. But we have this example in the great shepherd who said, I lay my life down for the sheep. So Christ entrusts his bride to pastors and leaders. Therefore, we should care about the well-being of the church. And beloved, he wants his church to serve and be witnesses. Titus 2.14, he, Jesus, gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Get this, eager to do good works. He has put the church together, not that we can only look to the day when we don't have to worry about stuff, but that we would say, okay, we have something to do. We have a king to represent. We have needy people to serve. Let's do that together. Now, we've talked about elders. Another question we need to to cover is how does the congregation relate to the elders and the leaders? What does that look like? Hebrews 13, 17 through 18, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. This is a couple of things. One, it says we need to obey the teaching of the scriptures that comes from the elders. Now, there's, there's a lot of conversation about authority and the authority being abused. So I want to be very clear. The authority of the church does not reside in any person. It resides in the scriptures. Okay? It doesn't, no, no one person has the authority just ex nihilo, just, just because they have it. In other words, you listen to me as far as I conform to the scriptures. All right? A lot of people, like, we don't, we don't want to have, it's not trying to get excess control. We obey the leaders in as far as they teach the scriptures. That means that I'm not going to have a God-ordained opinion about everything that you do. <laughs> right? I have conversations. People tell me, what should I do this, that, and that? I'm like, well, if you fight sin and you pursue righteousness and you serve other people, I didn't do what you want. Okay? <laughs> like, but if you're not fighting sin, then we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> if you're not pursuing righteousness, then we're going to talk. If you're not serving other people, then that's up for discussion. So, beloved, this is not random, willy-nilly authority. It's authority that resides in the text of Scripture as faithfully taught by God's pastors. Also, it teaches us to, that we follow the direction set for the church to accomplish the care, the serving, and the witness. So, so in other words, we, we agree that the church has something to do. we got some stuff to do. And God puts leaders there to say, okay, this is the direction. So at the very least, it means we come to church on Sundays. It means we meet together with other believers and we serve the community with the church. Another obligation, it says that you have to pray for your leaders. If you read the text, it's kind of a scary, uh, you might get stuck at the obey, but what I'm stuck at is they keep watch of your souls as those who will give an account. <laughs> okay, so when I stand for the Lord, it's not just how did you do, Will? is did, did you shepherd the flock? So pray. Pray for those who are elders and leaders because we have to answer to the Lord regarding what we did. And the last thing is you would hold elders accountable to holiness. 
1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, it says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who are in sin so that the rest will be afraid. When you step up in leadership, you invite scrutiny, and some of that is, is biblical. We don't want to teach about something that we don't model. So if you have uh, an issue, a question about any of our leaders, any of the elders that, that we might have, you approach me or other leaders with your concerns because we are held accountable by the scriptures and by the congregation to follow Christ in a way that honors him. Now, usually at the end of a certain sermon, you have like this really concrete application points, but the application point is in a, in a little bit, we're going to appoint uh, two elders, two more elders in our congregation. Okay, so I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion and we're going to pray for uh, the two individuals who we're going to appoint. All right, let's pray. Father, I, I ask that, that you would help us to see how much you love and care for the church. The church is not your plan B. It's not insignificant, but it has eternal value because it is loved by the eternal one. Lord, I pray that you will help us all care deeply about the teachings of the gospel, that we would not fudge on points that the scripture is clear about, that we would not shrink from believing and declaring everything your word says. Lord, I pray for this church, for my church, that you would help us to grow in holiness, that you would help us to grow in love for one another. Would you help us to grow in the ways that we serve our community? Would you do all this by the power of the Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.